All right, well, it's still a new year, isn't it? Turn in your Bibles with me to James chapter 2 today. So we decided that we would start to go through the book of James together. So we find ourselves in chapter 2. And as you're, as you're turning there, I want to tell you a story. For, for whatever reason, God has given me the opportunity to, to have a number of different jobs. And one of those jobs, uh, types of jobs I've had over the years, has been food service. I've worked at McDonald's. I've worked at Italian restaurants. I've... I've worked at, I was a, I was a baker uh, for uh, bagels at one point, getting up at like two o'clock in the morning and getting everything ready for people to come in with hot and fresh bagels. I have worked in Chick-fil-A, I was at Chick-fil-A for a period of time. But um, one of the probably most fattening jobs that I've had since I was able to eat for free was at Five Guys Burgers and Fries. Anybody like hamburgers? Have you ever had Five Guys before? Imagine being able to eat that for free. It's dangerous. Well, so I had the opportunity to have Five Guys, but as a, as a manager at Five Guys, one of the biggest challenges and responsibilities that we had was keeping the restaurant clean was preparing high quality food. And we had this list of different things that we were kind of graded on, if you will, that if our boss was to walk in the store, much less if corporate was to come into the store, they would look for these things. There would be no smudges or handprints on the glass when they came in. They would, if they were to go in the bathrooms, the bathrooms would be spotless. It'd be kind of like one of those places, like if you're traveling, help some people will just stop to go to the bathroom at Starbucks because it's usually pretty clean. You know, so this would be the kind of place, let's stop and go into Five Guys. You know, you could practically eat, off, not that you would, but you could eat off the floor in the bathroom. You know, the fries were hand, hand cut, and so we had to make sure that everything was just crispy and perfect. Everything was cut fresh. The meat weighed out daily. Nothing ever frozen. The, the restaurant, the tables were clean. There was no stickiness and, you know, chairs were rubbed down. I mean, just every aspect about the place, there was some kind of way that we were kind of graded and looked at. Okay. Part of the way that they did that was they had someone that would come in once a week. And they could come during the day or they could come at night. We didn't know who they were. They were a secret shopper. You know, it's one thing at school or in college, you know, you're going to be graded for something, but you knew that that was happening, right? You didn't know when this person was going to come in. That was the whole point of it. It was a surprise visit. Because what happened is, is that they would come in and they would kind of grade your restaurant. And then we would get those grades back, so to say, and they'd grade us in all these different things. And if we kept getting perfect grades or high grades, we would get bonuses after a period of time. And the bonuses were spread out among the management and the actual staff in the store. So even if you weren't a manager, you were just someone that was over fries, you were purposely going to make sure those fries were the best ever because you got a piece of that money too. So everybody wanted to be perfect. Everyone, everybody wanted to be good. Well, it got to the point where people would, would really pay attention to, to return visitors we had video. We tried to figure out, well, not really me, but 
kind of the upper management would kind of help figure out who these secret shoppers were. We didn't know who they all were, but there was always a couple that we could just tell that they were secret shoppers. That's cheating, right? But we knew who they were. And so I just remember this one lady, every time she would come in, you know, everyone was like, it was like the secret code had gone out, you know, <laughs> and everyone's just going, all right, no peanuts on the floor, check the bathrooms, make sure those fries are perfect and crispy and they're overflowing out of the cup, make sure that hamburger is done just perfectly, make sure there's no wilted lettuce, I mean, and so this person just had the very best service, exquisite experience that you can imagine. Can I refill your drink like you do that at Five Guys? You know, can I, you know, and, you know, just go out of their way. Everyone's smiling, everyone's happy. It's like you just walked into Disney World. Well, it's interesting because not everybody got that service, right? You ever been in a situation like that where you've, you felt like somebody else was treated better than you? That's like the typical situation of, of standing in a line for food, right? You know, and, and everyone's like, you see someone get in front of you, like, who do they think they are? You ever had that? You ever, come on. Yeah, all right. You're like, they're no better than me. Get in line, buddy. Or you're sitting at a restaurant and you're watching everybody else gets their drinks and they get their food before you and you're like, well, we were here what? We were here first. How come they got a table? How come? And so that aspect just drives you nuts, doesn't it? When we look in James chapter 2, we start out with this, this story where, where James is telling us to not treat people to not treat people in the church with favoritism. He jumps into that, and we're going we're gonna to look at that because there's, there's a, lot, a lot that goes into the background of that. But in James chapter 2, he says, My brothers, church people, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Show no favoritism. Okay, what is favoritism? We just kind of described it. You know, it's treating somebody else better than another. Or maybe treating somebody else worse than another. That's not something that belongs in the church. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if, you pay, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Partiality is not something that belongs in the church. Daryl, I hate to see you back there, man. I, I know that, you know, why don't you come on up? Why don't you come on up here next to me? He's probably like, you're just creepy, dude. I don't want to come. <laughs> this chair is, 
What, yeah, what, if, what if all these chairs were like this, but then there was just one with like a real, real fancy velvet like cushion on it? And Daryl was the only one that sat in it. You know? And sometimes, actually, I, I've been a part of a lot of Baptist churches in the past. I'm a Southern Baptist preacher where there was plaques for certain people, you know? And it was kind of like they were expected that that was kind of like their seat. That kind of favoritism, that kind of this person is better than another, doesn't belong in the church. And God says, you, you, you don't treat people that way. God's love for you and you and you and you and you is, is, is he loves all of you equally. There is no one that's better than anyone else, and, and yet you, you've got this idea where you're going to treat other people better. Why would you do that? You've got this rich guy that comes in, and, and during this time, apparently the Romans, one of the biggest things that they did was they would wear all kinds of rings. They would wear as many flashy rings as they could on their left hand. Why their left hand? I don't know. But they would just, it was all about the rings. You notice that in culture, it's like, some you know, the ones that are the coolest have maybe the best clothes. They've got, you know, as a teenager, I remember it was like, you know, it was all about the shoes. I remember this one particular season in, in high school, like I wanted to have these Adidas shoes. You were nobody unless you had some of these Adidas shoes, the, the soccer Adidas shoes that have kind of come back around. Now they're in like 25 different colors, you know. But if you didn't have those Adidas shoes, you were nobody. And you're like, really? You know what I'm saying, right? Whatever that particular thing is, well, if you don't have an iPhone, you're nobody. Or if you don't, you know, there's something different as the years go on. For the Romans back then, it was all about the rings, all about having the rings, to the point that literally there were shops that you could go in Rome and you could actually rent rings for special occasions. What's that? Yeah, yeah, we need to rent a Sunday ring. I'm going to stand at the door. You can't come in. Where's your Sunday ring? We don't allow just anybody in here, okay, into Toby's place. You need to have a Sunday ring. And like, what, what you, this is like, what, what is going on here? There is no favoritism in the church. There is no, you stand over here, you come sit here. So you've got this really rich individual, and then you have this poor individual that's wearing basically rags. And what he's talking about is not just poor in the sense that, you know, not just average poor, but, but like really poor. I got nothing. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of separation, socially, if you will, that we're dealing with in this passage, right? Those that have the, all the money in the world and those that have, have nothing. And you understand what that's like, don't you? And so he says, you stand over, you sit down, no, no, no. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The evil thoughts saying someone's better than somebody else. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not, this is really interesting, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? That's interesting. Has God chosen the poor? Right away, we see something different about how God thinks and how God looks at people. We are always wanting to choose, you know, there's something about the flashy, there's something about the rich, or something about somebody that's got, got all this stuff, and God's got all the power in the world. But he's looking at the poor. 
He's not looking at the poor because they don't have anything. Why do you think he's looking at the poor? What's that? Their heart. God has a different mentality. We have this sense that we want to look at the outside. We want the, the flashy, the, the good-looking kind of stuff. But what God's looking at is something much different. What he's really after and what he values is different than we typically value. God doesn't care about the outward. He cares about the inward. In fact, there's a passage of Scripture in, in 1 Samuel 16, 7. First one to get there gets a prize. No, they don't. I'm just kidding. Get there, though, because I don't have time to flip. I've got I to keep it to my notes. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Beat the computer guy. All right, read it. David, you lose again. Right, this passage comes from when, when God was choosing the next king and he sent Samuel as priest to anoint who the next king was going to be. He says, you've got to go to this guy. He's got a bunch of sons. You're going to check these dudes out. And so Samuel's looking at him. And he's thinking, well, this guy's tall. This one's this. This one's that. And, and he's like, no, God hasn't chosen that one. God hasn't chosen that one. God hasn't chosen this one. He finally says to Jesse, the dad, he's like, do you have some other sons that I don't know about? It's kind of like, well, yeah, we have this other guy, but he's kind of hanging out with the sheep. Because David was a shepherd. You know, if you hang around animals, if you're an animal person, you know you don't always stay very clean, right? So David's hanging out with the sheep. Wait, bring that guy in. Well, why would it be little old ruddy David? The sheep guy and the brothers are probably thinking, what? You know, but it wasn't about the outward appearance. It was about the heart. It was about the inside. There's something that's interesting about the aspect of not having anything. When you don't have anything, there's, there's an advantage in that sense when it comes to faith. When you have nothing, you can't hang on to things. You know? When you have nothing, there's no distractions there. Well, that car is important. This guitar is important. These clothes, these shoes, these rings. Your dependency literally is on God. Poverty has a benefit, and that's it. Because you realize when you have nothing else, you, there's no distractions. You realize what is truly most important, what's always been most important. No matter if you're rich or you're poor, the most important thing in your life is God. The one who made you, that connection, that, that relationship with God, that's always what's been the most important thing. And so God's chosen the poor of this world, and it's not that he's, he's, he's choosing, he's showing favoritism, he's chosen the poor in the sense that he's chosen people whose hearts are set on him. Let's keep looking at what it says. So don't be, be judging among yourselves, Right? With these evil thoughts, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Back then, during this period in time, as in every period of time, in some way, the rich, even though 
and not all rich, of course, but there are rich people who take advantage of the fact that they're rich, take advantage of the power that they have, even over those that have nothing. And this was going on back then. But there's, there's this aspect, again, of, of, of poverty that, that God says, this is, when you're in this situation, you have nowhere to look but up. Let's take a look at, at some and passages in the book of Psalms. We're going to start in Psalm 19. And you can all flip there because we're going to hang out for a little bit and kind of dance around a couple of chapters here. Psalm 19. We'll look at verse 7 through 11. So again, the question is, what, when we think about the favoritism aspect, when we think about riches, when we think about riches, we think about value, right? What's of value? This is what God says is of value. Every, every, every year, um, one of the things I, I try to encourage people to do when the new year starts is to, to, to read through the Bible in a year. And I know that, that y'all have been doing that, and different people that come in new, will figure, I know they're figuring out how does that work out for y'all. Maybe everyone starts on different days or whatnot. But it's important to know what God has to say. The value of this right here far surpasses anything else. Anything else that I have. And look at what it says in Psalm 19.7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts or the, or the teachings of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Think about this right away, automatically, reviving the soul, rejoicing the heart. Why do people buy stuff? To try to attain happiness. Yeah. They want that, that feeling of happiness. I've got the very best. If I only had this, right? My neighbor apparently just got a Mustang. I walked out, I'm like, holy crow. <laughs> This dude's got a Mustang, you know? And your first thought is, oh, one of those. Because then you, then you start to imagine it, right? You're like, oh, that would be so cool. Driving and the, the power and hit the gas and, and that feeling, right? That's real joy. That's real happiness, is it? Have you ever had that feeling when you thought, if I just had this, I would be happy. If I just had this, oh my goodness, that would be so great. And then you get it. That's almost a disappointment, you know? You know, it's really interesting right now. I mean, it has been for, for a number of years, but one of the, the coolest things that people like to do on YouTube, anybody ever watch YouTube, looked at some of the YouTube stuff? Yeah, I know you have, man. One of the coolest things on YouTube is an unboxing. Yes, <laughs> right. Because it's like you get to experience Christmas all the time. You're like... Because the best part of getting something new is what, right? It's taking off that cellophane 
and opening up the box and pulling out all the pieces. Apple knows this. When you get a new Apple phone, if you've ever, you will in the future, who knows? They, they box it in such intricate and clean and beautiful ways that you like. It's an experience to open it up and to pull this out. And you're like, ooh, ah, oh. And so on YouTube, like, there's videos of all these unboxings, you know? And there's videos of, of brand new games even before they come out. And you're like, oh, that's going to be awesome. But the word of God, what comes from God, is perfect. It's reviving the soul. It's rejoicing the heart. And the good thing is, is it's real. It's not temporary. It's lasting. You know? When Jesus is talking to this lady who's at the well, he says, if you, you come and get from me, this, you'll get this living water that springs up. You know something about a spring is it, it, this, the spring from God doesn't run out. It's reviving the soul. It's, it's rejoicing the heart. And so, let's keep reading. It's, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord which, which is a reverence. It's not a, I'm scared of God. It's a, it's, an, it's a holy awe. It's a wow kind of thing, okay? The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now look at this. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold. They're more to be desired than riches. And I, I see Edie nodding her head, and if you've, you've, you've experienced that, if you've seen that, it's easy for you to nod your head to realize, yes, yes. <coughs> it's amazing. Is we have the most valuable thing right here, and sometimes we get distracted, and we get pulled away, and we're like, oh, there's a rich person coming into church, and these guys are looking in James. You know, let's give him the best seat. Let's give, why is he any better than anybody else? Because he has some stuff? But we all have the stuff. We have the stuff. We have the word of God. Much to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. It's an interesting passage because what I'm told in history is that, that, that as children were raised in Israel, for them to realize that how that passage about the word of God was valuable and that it was sweet, is they would literally put honey on some of these scrolls, and as a child, he would lick honey off of, of the word of God. They were trained to realize this, this is it. How sweet the word of God is. That's more than just a, just a passing phrase in scripture. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honey, uh, honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them and listening to what the, the word of God says and keeping them, there is great reward. There's great reward. And when it says there's great reward, it's not, it's not I get to go to heaven instead of hell. It's about life, Period. 
Obviously, being with the Lord is an amazing reward. But the thing that people get mixed up about being, being a Christian, about Christianity, it's not about the end. It's about right now, too. It's about life with God now. As I've said over and over and over, the very best way to live is, is God's way. He laid it out for, for a purpose, for a reason, for a plan. He's the one that made life. It's incredible. All right, let's look at another psalm. Let's look at Psalm 20. Which is right next door. Again, we're talking about the, the advantages of poverty, okay, because of our focus on God. 27, 20, verse 7 says, Some trust, I'm going to ask somebody to read that for me just for, just for kicks. Who wants to read it? Go for it. Yep. That's a really interesting passage, right? What is it in your life that makes you feel secure? You know? Some people feel secure because they have a nice house. They have a place to live, feel secure, feel good. Some people feel secure, they have uh, reliable transportation. I'm not saying these things aren't important but, the, but they, they feel secure because they have a car they can get from point A to point B. It's necessary to get places, right? Some people feel secure because they have a relationship. You know? Diane's not here, and I, oh, she's been gone over the weekend. She's in Charleston, by the way, with, with Shelby, who's got a volleyball tournament, and she's with family there and all doing all that kind of stuff. But I get, I get lonely when she's gone. I miss my wife. I love her. It's really difficult for me to sleep without her. And it would be easy, though, for me to say, I can't do it without Diane. There's a sense of security at night where I get to lie down and, and to hold my wife next to me. And you know that. And there's that feeling, I remember even more as a teenager, I just longed just to have that somebody. I just longed to have that relationship. And if I just had a relationship, I'd be okay. Want to be accepted, want to be loved. And my security came in a relationship. There are different material things, emotional type of things, things we try to hold on to, things we latch on to. We think that if I just have this, I'll be secure. If I just have this, I'll be okay. You can fill on that blank a lot of different things, and you can probably think of you right now, what's that thing? But in this passage, it says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. These are external things, right? This has to do with protection in particular. You know, if I've got my gun, I'll be okay. We got The government's going to take care of us. They're going to protect us from Iran or whatever, yeah, or whatever. All right? Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's where our trust is. We trust in God. All these other, other things, as you know, you know, sometimes you have a house, you don't. Sometimes you have a car, you don't. Sometimes you're in a relationship, sometimes you're not. Some things don't work out. There's, there's all kinds of issues and troubles and things that happen. But God doesn't change. God's faithfulness, he's, he's always there. He's described as, as, as the rock of ages. He's, he is there, solid, 
and firm with, with, with the power to accomplish anything. So what do we learn from that? If I was to ask, then, do you trust in chariots? Do you trust in stuff or do you trust in God? And James has this in, has this in mind as he's talking to the church. But we're going to look at one more passage in, in Psalm. We're going to turn to Psalms 18. Or Psalm 18. Just a, a couple of passages here that I thought were really cool. Thinking about the benefits of the Lord in Psalm 18, 28. David's talking here and he says, For it is you, talking about God, for it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. It's the Lord who, who, who brings light, who takes away darkness, not stuff. It's the Lord who lights my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. And he says, for by you I can run against a troop and by my God, I can leap over a wall. In other words, I can run against a troop. He's talking about, what's a troop? You know, an army. I can face an army. I can leap over a wall. I can face armies, and I can, I can, I can handle obstacles. Things that get in the way because of God. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. What does it mean to take refuge? It means to, you know, it's, it's raining outside. It's been pouring a lot this week. It's, it's coming inside into the refuge of Toby's place, right? You're like, oh my goodness, it's cold and it's wet out there. And you're thankful to get inside. That refuge is... We need to take refuge in God. And so keep that in mind as we go back to James. James is, is talking to these folks. Look, you've got to stop treating people with favoritism. Don't you realize, you know, what you're doing here? You're making the external things more important than the internal things. You're making this so-called trust on stuff more important than your trust in God. He says in verse 8, he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, what's the royal law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Loving your neighbor as yourself. How, how much do you love yourself? It's a good question. Who will be honest? <laughs> Nobody, okay. <laughs> or at least out loud, right? You love yourself a lot, you know?
love your neighbor, if you were to love your neighbor that way, who's your neighbor? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it, uh, there's a passage of scripture where, where, where they're asking Jesus that, well, who is my neighbor? Trying to be like, you know, try to, trying to weasel around things, you know, trying to be selective. You ever try to do that? You know, you try to follow the instructions, but like partially and try to weasel your way through things. What's that? Find the loophole. Yeah, find the loophole, right? <laughs> yep. It's interesting because we're going we're gonna to look at that a little here in a little bit. But he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you're doing well. But if you show partiality or that favoritism, if you will, right, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors, as, as sinners, in other words. And when it says the law, it's, talk, it's not talking about, <clears throat> you know, like South Carolina state law. It's talking about the first five books of the Bible. Books, five books of Moses, if you, if you looked into that. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's in those five books that the rest of the Bible kind of branches and grows from, if you will. But he says, so, you know, so if you're not doing this, you're, you're convicted by the law as transgressors. This is really interesting. For whoever keeps the whole law, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Or if you've broken one part of it, you've, you've broken all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. It's really interesting. So it's like you can't pick and choose, right? If God says this is the way to live and you say, well, I'm just going to, you know, we'll just use the Ten Commandments as an example. I'm going to follow commandment number one and maybe number ten, but the rest I'm not going to worry about. But it says if, if you, you've, you've, you've done nine out of the ten and you leave, you break one of the other ones, that doesn't mean you're like 90% good. Like, I got that 90% feeling pretty good about myself right now. You've broken all of it. It doesn't matter. This is where, you, this is where we get that, that understanding that, that, that all sins are equal. Because if you break one, they're, they're, it still breaks everything. You know, if I, uh, you know, which, if I put one hole down here, instead of 10 down here, is the coffee still going to leak? Is the cup still broken? I mean, it, you know, I can take a piece of pottery and, and drop it on the floor. It doesn't matter if it breaks into five pieces or 25. It's broken. And so there's, there's none of this aspect of saying, well, we, we, don't, we don't weasel around things. We don't, we don't pick and choose what, what God has, what, we, what God wants us to do. Thankfully, God's grace allows us to, um, to get back up and to live the life he's called us to live. Look what it says. Don't, it says you can't, you can't rationalize this away, right? That's what we try to do many times. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. 
And I love this little piece right here. It says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy wins. Another way to say that, grace wins. The grace of God is huge. I want to look at another example of that. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. kind of where we see this played, played, an example of this played out. He says in, in Matthew 6, 14, he says for, we're talking about the law of liberty here, it says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, what's a trespass? It's a sin, right? Something that somebody has done against you. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's a pretty, pretty eye-opening and scary passage in a way, right? Because we have this, this tendency, and this all has to, you know, of, of, of pointing the fingers, right? How could you be this way? And then, well, wait a minute, I'm that, I'm that way too? I don't forgive, you know. We, we, we want God's forgiveness. We want God's grace. But then we don't want to show it to other people. So this, this whole first section of James is interesting just about this aspect of, of realizing that there is no what God values, what's important to God, and, and trusting in God and placing your faith in God. And in fact, we're going to look at this next section about faith in verse 14. Good, we're doing pretty decent on time. It says, what good is it, by the way, think about how you treat, we just talked about how you're treating people with love, treating people equally, Understanding what's valuable to God. What's valuable to God, thankfully, is mercy and grace. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith, okay, but does not have works? In other words, you, you know, using the previous examples, you can't say that you, you love people and then there's no fruit to show that. In other words, you know, if you're, you're just loving the rich man when he comes in, but the poor person, the one that has nothing, you're not showing any love to them, you know, what's, what's going on here? What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, 
without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So what we're talking about here is there's a different, what is, what is real faith? And that's, that's really a good thing to kind of address this morning. You know, it's, it's not just saying, and we talked about this some last week, it's not just saying I believe in something. People use a lot of good words, don't they? Do you, <laughs> belief or faith is always, is always accompanied by action. You know, and, and I, I've shared this with you all. One of the things that, that makes me scared as a pastor, makes me scared as a teacher, is there's a passage of scripture that says God is going to hold teachers to a, a higher level of accountability. Because I do read this through every year. And I know a lot of stuff about the Bible. But God's not going to be judging me on all the stuff I know. Can you, can you fill out this test and tell me the right answers for all this? It's going to be about what, what have I done with it? Did I listen to what he had to say? Did I love people the way that he told me to love them? Did I, what kind of life did I live? It's one thing to know a lot of stuff. It's one thing to... to Real faith, it, a lie, faith that is alive, is always accompanied by action. There was, there's always something to be shown for it. What good is it? He uses a, this example. Somebody comes to, knocks on my door, and I can open the door and plainly see that they're freezing. They've been coming through the rain, they're wet, you know, and hear their stomach grumble. You know, it's very obvious what they need, right? They're right there. They're right in front of you. And then I say, well, let me pray for you. Sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? Lord, I just pray that you will give this person a dry, warm place to stay tonight. Pray that you would provide them with some food. You know, I might get my wife to come out and kids and circle around them and pray for them. Or I really hope to do something for them. And then, like it says in the passage, well, God bless you. May you be warm and filled. Okay? Be warm and filled, meaning, you know, have, have something to eat. And I close the door. And I go back and sit down and turn on my, my big screen TV while I'm flipping through my iPhone, while I've got some chips and dip next to me, hot cup of coffee, is that faith, a faith that's alive. That's ludicrous, isn't it? You know? I heard, I've read this passage this week that I thought was kind of interesting. It's like, you know, strangers helping other strangers at times, it's like the, the most help you get is when someone sneezes and they say, well, God bless you. That's not really helping anyone. It's like, but, but that's, the kind of, that's the kind of flippancy that this is. And, and James calls this out and says, that kind of faith is garbage. That's not real faith. 
the fruit of real faith is there, there's, there's going to be something that accompanies it. There's fruit. There's, there's something that's changed or something that you're doing as a result of it. The Bible is clear. You're not saved by doing good stuff. You are saved by your faith in God. But because of your faith in God, you know it's real because things do change. The way you think about things, the way, way you treat other people, the trust that you, that you have in God, it's an evidence for those kinds of things. And it's interesting because it just makes common sense. That's why some of us maybe have had some issues in the past with church, with Christian people. It's just kind of been like that, you know. You've had that experience, so to say, where you've kind of knocked on the door and everyone's just kind of, God bless you, let me pray for you, did nothing for you of any substantive value. And so this is a real challenge to all of us this morning that says, all right, well, what is, what is God telling me to do that I'm not doing? Or telling me to stop that I am doing? Because real faith means something. You know, I mean, I, I told you guys last week that you know, I came up in church as a kid, went to all kinds of church services. I knew, you know, the sinner's prayer. I knew, you know, a lot of different stuff because I'd heard a lot of information. But I didn't have a true faith in God. I knew a lot of stuff. My dad took me to church. My grandmother was preaching at me and my sister all the time telling us about Jesus. And, but, I, but I could have cared less if I was to be completely honest when I was a kid. You know, it's a, and just because you show up in church doesn't mean you're a Christian. Toby's place, you have to be here, right? Yeah. It's like, great, I got a captive audience. You can't go anywhere. <laughs> but, you know, it's the same way. You, you walk into a car garage. You walk into a car garage. It doesn't make you a car, does it? You're just someone that happened to walk into a garage. How many of you know Donald Trump? Raise your hand. Oh, you know, can we go over, can you, and can I come with you the next time you're at the White House? I mean, how, I mean, how well do you know him? What? Are you getting, un, are you getting uncomfortable, Robin? Why, why are you uncomfortable? You said you know him. You don't? There's a difference. There's, you recognize him, seen him on TV, some of his tweets, some of his things, but you tell me we can't go over for dinner. Why? There's something about that we need to realize. I mean, we can know a lot about God. Let's 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 look. Let's keep reading, and we're going to address that in a second. Right. Someone will, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I'm going to show you I'm the real deal because I'm going to act on what I say I believe. Right? You believe that God is one, you do well. In other words, you believe in God, great. But look at what it says here. This is interesting. Even the demons believe. Demons believe in God. So you hear someone, I believe in God, you're like, well, great. But do you have a relationship with God? It says that even the demons believe in God 
and shudder. They know he's real. They know who he is. But they don't have a relationship with God. We know who Donald Trump is. We know he's the president. We see him on TV. We could probably say all kinds of facts about him. We could Google him, this, that, and the other. But he's not going to let us into the White House. I don't have a relationship with him. I don't really know, know him, right? There's, there needs to be a real deal relationship with God. He uses these examples in James as we're wrapping up here about what real faith looks like. He says this, he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, what faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. <coughs> That's an interesting story, right? It's always been a story I've always struggled with, too. You know? This could be a whole sermon in itself, but, but God literally asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. Abraham is is literally about to follow through with it, and God stops him. I don't believe God truly actually had any intention of ever taking Abraham's son. It was a matter of, of, Abra of, of testing Abraham's faith. But here's, here's what, what makes this story make sense for me. When you read the book of Hebrews, I believe it's in Hebrews chapter 11, sometimes it's called the Hall of Faith, okay? It talks about people that had great faith in God and certainly their actions that, that accompanied it, so it was real faith. But Abraham had such faith in God and didn't, I believe, didn't have the issue with what God was asking him because he had such faith in God, it says in Hebrews, that he believed that if he was to kill his son that God would raise him back to life. That's the kind of faith that he had in God. Abraham followed through with what God had asked him. There was, there was actions and faith together. And this is just an incredible, difficult thing to ever be, be asked of God. But his faith and his actions were working together. So it's interesting we have Abraham... But there's another story that's used here too, which is interesting considering this whole chapter is about rich and poor and social status and who has money, who doesn't have money and treating people the way that God would. He uses this other story, says, well, I'm, gonna, I'm not quite there yet, but says, he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, now there's another one. He uses another example that I thought was cool. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? 
So we have Abraham, this guy who's kind of this great figure of faith in the Word of God. And then you have Rahab, a prostitute. Use for the same example in the same chapter. God doesn't consider Abraham any better than Rahab. Rahab wasn't Jewish even. She was from a, a different country. And she let the spies, if you know the story, if you've read this part, Israel was spying out the land that God had given them. And she brought them in for safe passage. She protected them from everyone else. And it was a matter of ex extending protection and hospitality, but it was really a, a measure of faith in action. Because she had heard, and all the people there had heard they made, who this God was. And Rahab, who wasn't, uh, it was from a whole other country, placed faith in God by allowing these spies to come in. So you see actions and faith coming together at the very end here. But you also see people of, of two different classes, especially during this time, that God looks at and says, this is an example. Abraham and Rahab. You know, one of the things that we forget about sometimes is that we just celebrated Christmas. Jesus was born into poverty. We sing about, oh, way in a... Yeah, no crib for a bed. Jesus wasn't born in a palace. He was, he was placed in essentially what is a feeding trough. Where the, the cows would come, and you so might have, you know, you, you feed your animals. They scraped away whatever was there and put some hay down and late, you know, well, we assume hay. He was, he was, there's more to the story. He was swaddled up, we know that for sure, and he was laid where you feed the, the livestock. That in and of itself is a message. Who does God care about? What, is, what does God value? Who does, who does God love? Let's look at one more passage and we're going to wrap things up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going the wrong direction. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. First Corinthians chapter one, beginning at verse 26. Paul here is talking to Christians again. He's talking to the church. He says this, he says, "For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. I guess you could say maybe you weren't as 
Not, a, lot, a lot of you were as smart as everybody else. Right? Not many were powerful. You know, not many of you were in office and had great reputation, so to speak, right? Not many were of, of noble birth, you know. I certainly was not born into a rich family, okay, or into noble birth, meaning royalty, right? A kingly line. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. You look at the group of people that Jesus chose as, as disciples, they weren't all these flashy, high-powered people. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, I would say, in the world. Not despised by God, clearly. God chose what's despised by the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. It's this way that God has this tendency of flipping things upside down that we've talked about. God's not looking for the powerful and the flashy. He's looking for the heart. He's looking for someone that's, that loves him, or to use a Christian phrase, that's sold out for him. They're all in, in other words. It says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So a lot, there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff here today in the book of James, you know? That's why I really love this particular book. But I guess the, the question this morning that I just want you to think through is, you know, is really this, is, is are you the real deal, you know, from, from the inside out? That, that encompasses, encompasses a lot of things. But I, I, I really, I don't want to be a pastor just because I have the title, you know. I want to be considered a pastor because they see someone that loves people, that cares for people, that teaches and, and does those things. That's something that, that gnaws at me, that, that haunts me in a way, if you will. You know, I, I'm also, you know, I work at the mission. You know, when I walk down Main Street and I encounter other homeless people, other people in need, what is, what is my heart towards them? You know, how do I treat people? But see, as, as a Christian with that title, Christian, a follower of Christ, that has a huge meaning, right? And the more you study Scripture and the more you see these things, you realize what that actually means. And you start to realize it's not what the world says Christian is or even what some churches say Christian is. You're like, have you read this? Look at what I just said here about favoritism. Church sometimes can be one of the biggest separated, messed up, social class type things, you know. That's why I, when we started Real Life Church, I wanted to be able to wear a t-shirt and jeans. I don't care, and God doesn't care what you wear to church. He cares about what's on the inside, what, what, what we cannot see, but God can. 
can see it all. So really, is, is the question this morning is, is, and the challenge is, who are you? You know, again, are you the real deal? If you are indeed a Christian this morning, ask the Lord, what is it, God, that you're asking me to do? What is it that needs to change? What is it that's not genuine, that's not real on the inside? Or maybe you're like I was when I was a, when I was a teenager. You're just, you're just here because you have to be. And you truly are here because you have to be, you know. But would that maybe change from you're here because you have to be, but because you're really you're here because you want to be? And it's really as, as simple as just asking, asking God to forgive you of your sins, asking Jesus to forgive you. And he will. He will cleanse you. He will wipe away the past. He will forgive you and give you new life. And making a decision that you will follow him. Following him is, you know, it's a day-by-day thing. It's choosing to live according to, to, to what we find here. It's just a, it's a simple decision. But it's, it's a real decision. There's a lot of people that made resolutions for the new year, right? But there's probably a handful of them that are following through with that. You know, I'm, I'm trying, I made a resolution a year ago, and I'm still trying to go through it with my whole weight loss thing. I was out yesterday running six miles against the wind, which was not fun. But actions accompany, real faith has actions that come with it. The Lord knows your heart. You, you know the inside, you know that nobody else can see. You know what's real and what's not. But I would just simply say this, is that, you know, if, if you are somebody this morning that says, you know, I'm making that decision to follow Jesus, let somebody at Toby's place know or let me know or somebody in the church know because the whole point of the church is that you, you follow Jesus as a group. As the, the church really is not just this church, it's, it's globally, it's, it's worldwide. And we're in, this, we're in this together. You know, the Bible says that, that uh, it's talking about you're the light of the world. And... It's important that we shine brightly. Um, the world will only be, be changed if we truly live according to the way Christ has called us to.